So, you know, if you listen to the podcast, you probably watch a tremendous amount of movies and filmed entertainment like I do. And so maybe it's not unfamiliar to you to develop over time certain likes or dislikes for certain directors. Of course, it's easy to land upon all of the directors that we love, whose work we admire, who consistently do interesting things, who make it worthwhile to go to the cinema. And in my less generous moments, I have those directors who just bug me. And I'm not always 100% sure why that is. Probably some flaw or failing in my character, first and foremost. You know, there's a phrase that says, you spot it, you got it, which means the thing that really infuriates you about someone else is probably a quality that you don't like to admit that you have. Maybe there's some of that in some of these instances. Sometimes I think people's films or the things that they're trying to do in films just rubs up against kind of your sense of tone or what, how you think something should be approached. So I don't really have very many directors like that at all that I could say, you know, I'm just not going to go see the thing that they do. Not that I, you know, refuse to see it in any kind of a certain way, but I just know through repeat kind of setting myself up again and again to say, well, maybe this Aaron Sorkin production will be the one that contains all of the things I respect and admire and doesn't traipse over into the pretentious, unrealistic type of speechifying typified by the Jeff Daniels, why is America the greatest country speech in newsroom. There is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. We're seventh in literacy, 27th in math, 22nd in science, 49th in life expectancy, 178th in infant mortality, third in median household income, number four in labor force, and number four in exports. We lead the world in only three categories. Number of incarcerated citizens per capita, number of adults who believe angels are real, and defense spending, where we spend more than the next 26 countries combined, 25 of whom are allies. Now, none of this is the fault of a 20-year-old college student, but you nonetheless are, without a doubt, a member of the worst period, generation period ever, period. So when you ask what makes us the greatest country in the world, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Yosemite? Or whatever it was called. So when something comes out from Sorkin, I don't see it because I've gone to the well so many times and I've learned to learn that that stuff, for whatever reason, just doesn't work for me. And I'm kind of hesitant and loathe to even go down a road like that because, or here on the podcast, because, you know, anybody doing anything in a creative endeavor is an impressive accomplishment. Any, any marshalling of the resources and the difficulties, surmounting the difficulties of any type of production, film, theatrical, musical, whatever it is, writing, for anyone to be doing that is a tremendous amount of hard work and mercurial luck and all different types of things that go into the pot. So, you know, I'm aware of that and I'm reflexively disinterested in things that take you know, a negative slant just to take a negative slant. Uh, a good time, a good friend of the pod sent me a, or, or tagged me in a link the other day for, I guess there's a video series called like why this song 
sucks or something. And, you know, I watched a few minutes of it. It was about the band Train. Um, and, you know, I just didn't see the point of 45 minutes of uh, picking the most obvious fight in the world. And what do we gain and what do we learn? I don't really know because I didn't get through the whole thing. But, you know, that's not typically my thing. I say that all as a preamble for this episode, <laughs> ironically, because ironically for a film about how polarized America is, the Adam McKay film Don't Look Up is, of course, polarizing in and of itself. Reams of ink have been spilled already. Just scrolling through opinion pieces, think pieces, reviews, you know. People have such opinions and are split down such a divide. And it's not a right-left divide per se. I think a lot of the film reviews that I've read sort of take McKay to task for some satirical failings and things of that sort, which we'll get into as we talk more here on the pod. But, you know, I finally watched the film, uh, which I wasn't really inclined to do because I've learned over the last couple of Adam McKay films that, you know, for whatever reason, it just doesn't work for me. There's a certain uh, kind of freeness with sort of graphics on screen that just strikes me as a bit lazy and sometimes telegraphing rather than finding creative writing or other filmic kind of abilities to do something that he just does by kind of stamping the information on the screen. He does it in Don't Look Up, right? Sort of in the beginning when there's like a very weird space agent, space defense agency. And one of the, and I think Jennifer Lawrence's character is like, what the hell is that? Is that a real agency? And McKay stamps on the screen. Yes, it's a real agency. And this is their logo. I feel like I've seen this in, maybe the last three McKay movies that I've seen. I'm going to say this one, Vice, and what is it? Too Big to Fail? Is that the finance one? Hey, me again. Guess what? I made a mistake. I wanted to correct it. Twice in the pod, I referred to Adam McKay directing a movie called Too Big to Fail, which he didn't. That was actually directed by Curtis Hansen. The film I was referring to is The Big Short. I liked elements of all those movies. There are performances in all these movies that are really great. There are sharp lines in all of these movies that make me laugh. Yet, each of those movies, to me, ultimately is unsatisfying because, because what? That's the sort of the point. Um, the reasons that it, those movies might you know, fail me personally might be the reason you love them. So to each his own, of course. So anyway, I, I wanted to sit down and finally watch this movie because... It is a film that is taking on that kind of <laughs> pro and con. So that, that makes it interesting. Then, you know, color me interested. I'm interested in it because we're still living in a time when filmic releases um, are going in one direction, which this movie did, which was have a very limited release before streaming. And then you have the new Spider-Man movie, which I feel doesn't have the same level of chatter that a movie like Don't Look Up does on the internet, but is defying COVID and defying limited theater going by making an unfathomable amount of money in the teeth, not only in the teeth of the pandemic still, but in the exact time that the Omicron wave is hitting. So it's fascinating to think about the business of these films and what what resonates and what doesn't. So obviously in Don't Look Up, Adam McKay's latest film, 
you have a galaxy of stars, which makes people want to go and watch the film. And certainly for those who fall more identifiably on the left side of the political spectrum, this is a film that is preaching to their choir. It is signaling to them. It is elevating their perspective and their worldview. It is looking down at the other side and presenting the right or Republicans in the cartoonish, one-dimensional manner that certainly the Republican Party of the Donald Trump era deserves, you can say, and resembles. So in that sense, it's not necessarily, to me, pulling or throwing punches in a specific manner, but it's clearly coming from the left side of the political spectrum. And in doing so, I think it, it loses some of the bite and some of the teeth that as a satire, it might otherwise have had. So in watching it, I'm kind of, I'm aware that it's hard for me to watch it clear. It's hard for me to sit down and watch it clean because I have prejudices and predispositions and I'm waiting almost like my, my, just like my COVID receptors are there waiting, you know, for the COVID to get in. My Adam McKay is a hack receptors are tingling and waiting to go, ah, yeah, see, I knew it. I knew it was going to happen. So watching it, I'm kind of conscious of having to let that go. And I did kind of prepare to let that go and try to just receive the movie uh, as it came at me. And, and I think it did a good job of that. <laughs> I know it's kind of ridiculous to pat yourself on the back for being able to sit down and watch a piece of comedic satirical entertainment. But, you know, I did, I did accomplish that in such a manner that I feel confident taking a half hour here to just talk about this film because I think a lot of you have seen it and will have interesting opinions one way or the other. So first of all, so let's start with uh, who's good and what's good because there's a lot. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence, I think this is her first film appearance in a few years. I saw some Hollywood Reporter headline about that. But Jennifer Lawrence is, um, I would say, kind of the emotional center of the film. And in a lot of ways, one of the more believable and realistic characters in the film, which I think goes to the reason why uh, I think she's one of the better performers in the film, because she's always realistic to me. Her character does not do things that are completely unrealistic and purely for comedic effect, but many other characters in the film do. So uh, her emotional presence, her groundedness, her genuineness with the other characters in scenes, all of that reminds you what a talented actor she is. And her performance is really good. She's great. Leonardo DiCaprio is good. He's um, he's hamstrung more so than the Jennifer Lawrence character because he has what Adam McKay might as well have stamped on screen as Oscar speech towards the end of the film. He has this frenzied, uh, full-throated, on-television meltdown that I suppose is supposed to be this film's uh, Howard Beale network moment, but it just rings a little false due to 
a lot of other kind of problems that we've had in the script up to that point. And because his character is one that doesn't stay grounded and realistic. And even as his character goes through an arc that's understandable, where he's this just almost nonverbal scientific nebbish at the beginning, you know, then he is banging the, you know, Megan Kelly, Mika Brzezinski hybrid of Kate Blanchett's character. And he's on the cover of magazines and he's leaving his wife and his loving family in the Midwest. And he just, it just becomes too much and you kind of lose uh, your care and your concern for him in a manner that I think undercuts what the film is doing. Rob Morgan turns in an interesting performance as another scientist who uh, bounces off of and is with Jennifer Lawrence and, and Leo's characters as they try to navigate Meryl Streep's uh, government. And he turns in a really nice kind of performance that uh, feels thought out and he feels like a real person. And there's little character touches when he's home with his cat and things like that that I appreciate and I thought were done really, really well. Uh, Melanie Linsky is always good in anything. She's a great character actor and she does a great turn as uh, the wife of the Leo character. Mark Rylance does what is kind of a subgenre of acting now, which is the, you know, billionaire quote in air quotes, genius, Steve Jobs type thinker. It's kind of like the Silicon Valley, you know, character who's obsessed with like the Burger King menu and amusing coincidence that two of the three countries that provide the world's sesame seeds have such large cicada populations, no? The cicadas of Myanmar emerge every 13 years while the Brazilian cicadas emerge every 17. Next year, they will hatch simultaneously for the first time in 221 years. Crops from both countries will be decimated. Unlike Myanmar and Brazil, Indonesia has no cicada population. I was surprised to see Indonesian sesame seed futures priced so low. I made a purchase. And now, if the shortage spikes the global price even 10%, we'll profit... Evan? $68 million. If you wish, I could tap that projected revenue and make you a bridge loan of $15 million, gentlemen. <sighs> Unless you need more? No, that's... <laughs> you hold yeah. shit. Yes? <laughs> Happy? See? I told you he was taking care of it. And now... Would anyone like some BK? Evan was kind enough to go out and get breakfast. It's just sitting here. Actually, we'd, we'd, I'd love yeah, some. Thank you so much. Is there cumin in this barbecue sauce? I will definitely find out. Please do. These are such a thing. There are, there are a number of them. Mark Rylance being Mark Rylance is always interesting to watch. And his uh, impersonation, I guess, of this fictional character, which is how it sort of feels to me, doesn't feel quite as grounded or realistic as some of the other characters. But he ticks a lot of the boxes and he has the voice and it's not quite fully baked. And But I'm still putting him in the who's good category. So I, I just want to make sure that that you're that you're open to the scientific peer review process and you're not approaching this entire mission like, like a businessman, you know? That, what did you say? 
I want to know if you're... Did you call me a businessman? You do own a corporation. You think I'm just a businessman? Do you think you know me, doctor? No. Business? This is evolution. This is evolution of the human species. What are you doing bringing this? Do you know that Bash has over 40 million data points on you and every decision you have made since 1994, doctor? I, I, I know when you have colon polyps months before your doctor does. You've got four or five at the moment, actually. You know, they're not you know, concerned, but I'd have a checkup as soon as you can. But more importantly than that, much more importantly than that, I know what you are. I know who you are. My algorithms have determined eight fundamental consumer profile types. You are a, a lifestyle idealist. You think you're motivated by beliefs, high ethical beliefs, but you just run towards pleasure and away from pain. Like a, like a field mouse. A lot of people told me before I saw the film that they loved Timothy Chalamet's brief cameo and they were right. He is hilarious. Uh, you will forever think of and love the line, I fucking love fingerling potatoes after you see this film. He <laughs> does a very funny turn. And the people who play the sons, I don't know their names, but but Leo's Leo's sort of nebbishy science, science, scientific character has this loving family with Melanie Linsky as his wife and these two sons. And the two actors who play them are really great. They're, they feel like real people and they feel, uh, again, like they kind of ground the film in something real, which <sighs> pays off and doesn't pay off at the end. We'll get to that, but that's part of the frustration. So who's not great in the film? You, know, you have Meryl Streep and Jonah Hill as a mother and son team in the White House. It's just... It's, I just thought it was too easy. You know, I just thought it was an example of which I think the whole film ends up being a greater example of, of trying to do a satirical take and failing because you erred on the side of the comedic caricature instead of playing someone realistically. You know, the two films that this obviously wishes that it was and and wants you to know it's influenced by are being there and network. Now, those are two obviously superior films to this one, only by dint of the fact that they're, you know, two of the greatest films ever made. Not coincidentally, both are available as full cast and crew podcast episodes. I encourage you to listen to both of them. And I think the thing that both being there and network have is that they approach the characters seriously. And Adam McKay, if I look at the dividing line in the Adam McKay directorial career, you know, I never had a problem with any of the pure comedy Adam McKay movies that I think still probably hold up. But it's when he kind of decided that he had something to say and he became more political, vice, you know, too big to fail, um, that's where that's where it just started to kind of lose me. But, you know, that's what the guy wanted to do. And, you know, people have gotten Oscar nominations for those films. And there are great performances in those films. So it may be that as he matures as a person and as a filmmaker, you know, maybe some of these rough edges get honed out. And he is capable 
of a film with the type of writing evident in a film like Being There or Network. But again, Being There, you've got Jerzy Kaczynski and Network, you have Patty Chayefsky. I mean, you have two of the greatest satirical writers, writers period that ever lived. And here we have Adam McKay. So it's a bit of an unfair fight to set up. However, let's get back to who I didn't think really delivered for me. Meryl um, is always Meryl. She's always watchable. She's always interesting. But in a film that really cried out for sort of a really believable Trumpian type of presidential takedown, I felt a little cheated that we didn't get that. I'm not really sure who she's supposed to be. The shift that she makes in the film is jarring and pretty ham-handed from, you know, left to right. And Jonah Hill as her son, too. It's just, you know, he's doing a winking, nudging Jonah Hill to the camera, look at me, aren't I clever performance. So, so how certain is this? There's 100% certainty of impact. Please, don't say 100%. Can we just call it a potentially significant event? But it isn't potentially going to happen. 99.78% to be exact. Oh, great. Okay, so it's not 100%. I'm gonna call it 70% and let's just, let's move on. But it's not even close to 70%. Let's just use like 60% as a working number. Okay, we're gonna get our own scientists on this, you know, no offense. Dr. Mindy is a tenured professor of astronomy at Michigan State. I'm sorry, did you say Michigan State? Exactly, they have an excellent astronomy department. You say so. You want to see my SAT scores? I'm sorry. Who is she? Are you her son? I'm chief of staff boy with the dragon tattoo, so I'm doing fine. How many tampons can you fit in that bag? As many as I want. At this very moment, I say we sit tight and assess. Sit tight and assess. Sit tight and, and assess. You want us to sit tight. And then assess. And... Adam McKay seems to take great glee in cutting away to Jonah Hill carrying Meryl Streep's handbag. I mean, I think he uses that visual joke four, five, ten times in the film. Like, haha, it's funny to see a guy carrying a handbag that makes him emasculated, I guess, in the Adam McKay filmic universe. But it's typical to me of just sort of some of the lazy sketching that goes on. So Jonah Hill's character is not believable. And in not being believable, he, he, he robs the proceedings of some of, of the gravity it could have had. However, some of the little character details are pretty hilarious. He features a Richard Melee watch, which is this overcomplicated kind of typical, you know, millionaire, billionaire douchebag watch. And it's such a great little touch and nothing is ever made of it. It's never referenced, but you just see him wearing it, uh, so that type of subtlety I really appreciate, and I, I wish I got more of that. Kate Blanchett, I, I wrote down in the kind of who's not good category, but I'm not sure. I'm going to have to put her in the middle because there's something interesting going on there, and her take is grounded in the realism of a character that she's clearly thought about. Um, to me, it was very clear she's doing sort of a mashup of the Mika Brzezinski and Megyn Kelly and morning show anchor thing. But then there's this whole other side to her that's like, oh, I'm way more educated and intelligent than I appear on television. I've got four master's degree. I speak four languages, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not really sure what that's about. Like, uh, neither is she, I don't think. Yet, 
there is something about the cravenness of the character that has some kind of truth to it. But again, I think just more realism. To me, the more real satire is, the more biting it is. And although um, uh, her scenes on the set of The Morning Show with Tyler Perry are very funny, there, you know, Tyler Perry is doing a very deft comic turn as the male part of The Morning Show host duo. And they, they hit all of those notes perfectly. And also, I would say a lot of the throwaway kind of pop culture stuff that other ancillary characters reference or are doing in the film is also pretty well handled throughout. There's kind of a future verse being presented to us with some subtle delineation of kind of what makes it different from now. Everyone's using this specific phone that the Mark Rylance character is putting out. Uh, Some of the ways they show things going viral or becoming memes are very funny. So that's kind of your main cast breakdown. And the satire, as it is, um, it's just striking to me that it didn't strive for more realism, which to me is the underpinning of all truly great satire. I don't think you can wink at the camera and engage in the asides. And also, by the way, kind of have your cake and eat it too, which Adam McKay wants to do all through the film. Like the last part of the film, um, and I don't think I'm going to be giving you a spoiler alert at this point, but you know, headline, guess what? We as a society don't get our shit together and get destroyed by an asteroid that becomes a political football. And the whole last part of the movie is this very maudlin scene around the Leo DiCaprio family table with everybody holding hands and uh, Chalamet's character who we've been told, you know, was raised in an evangelical household but found his own way to spirituality, uh, delivers a really beautiful prayer. And they're all kind of holding hands and literally eating apple pie as the entire planet is destroyed. And it's this filmed moment that is supposed to be very feeling, very emotional, very real. And in case you didn't get that, the music is there to tell you that. (laughs) And in case you didn't get that, the song that then plays after it goes to black and the world is destroyed, you know, is this modern sort of folky smart ballad that further is supposed to tell you, hey, you're going to feel heavy when you walk out of this because we laid some heavy truth on you here. But then he can't resist going back for a couple credit gags. And that's the thing that to me saps the film ultimately. It's kind of like commit to one or the other. But when you try to have it both ways, it it just doesn't, doesn't retain that power. And this is maybe an esoteric point. But I noticed it enough in the film that it kind of bugged me, and I'm not sure why. There's a use of black music in the ears of white characters in the film that to me feels a little egregiously like, look at us, aren't we cool? Uh, We appreciate this music. Jennifer Lawrence's character, when you first meet her, is uh, listening to Wu-Tang Clan on her headphones when she's scanning the universe in the microscope and discovers the comet that's going to destroy planet earth. And she's rapping along with it. 
for a fairly, you know, a good minute and a half or so of the scene. And it's kind of like character exposition. Okay. Let's tell you a little bit about who this person is. Um, I kind of noted it. I think it's a thing that I see quite a bit in films and TV shows. Uh, there are times I think when mostly white show creators and directors want to telegraph that, Hey, they're cool. Hey, we know this. Hey, we're with this for some reason. Maybe it's my cynicism. It never feels genuine. It kind of feels like if you were really that genuine about it, you wouldn't necessarily stuff it into your film in a way that I'm not going to say it's jarring or unnecessary, but to me, it just reads like, hey, we're cool. We appreciate the Wu-Tang Clan. And look, I love the Wu-Tang Clan, but I'm not cutting it into my podcast. So that's one use. And then there's a moment in the car where (laughs) heading towards the final dinner, the Leo DiCaprio character uh, turns up the radio because the vocal quintet, I believe the Mills brothers from, you know, the forties or the fifties is on the radio. And he, he delivers like this mini soliloquy about the Mills brothers. And it's just another moment where like, okay, maybe Adam McKay is a lifelong Mills brothers aficionado, but like, what is that moment for uh, other than signaling something that, Hey, we're cool here. Like we're into this cool black vocal group from the fifties. Uh, I'm not sure what that has to do with the Leo cat character as we've come to know him. I'm not sure what it has to do with anything going on in the film, but there's at least those two uses and maybe another one that just felt a little off-putting to me. And I'm not sure why. Uh, I did want to shout out one of my favorite that guy character actors who is underutilized, and that's Paul Guilfoyle. You remember him from every single movie from the 80s and 90s and on. He is just a reliable, dependable character actor. Uh, If you saw Primary Colors, another... Is it a satire, Primary Colors? No. I guess it's uh, telling us a truthful story of the Clinton campaign. It's not so much a satire. But it's very effective, I think, because it stays true to the story and it sort of unfolds realistically as opposed to being a satire. Uh, That's just one of many Paul Guilfoyle roles. But I loved him. And he's in this film uh, and is used somewhat somewhat funnily, to coin a word, but I would have liked to see more of him. There's also all these intercuts that McKay uses of like stock footage of nature and animals. And I guess that's supposed to signal something to us about the wonder of the natural world and our uh, desire to trespass upon it. But again, it just feels like cutting away to a stock shot of two hippos, you know, rubbing up against each other not used for comedic effect is a shorthand when you probably should have spent the time to write it out longhand on the yellow legal pad and figure out what exactly it was you're trying to say before you do it. And here's another example of kind of where the film sets up in a promising way and then I think fails to deliver. There's a recurring couple of shots where the Leo character who, you know, goes from inarticulate scientific schlub to media darling by the way, at the expense of his female counterpart, whom he eventually takes or allows credit to be given him at her expense. But the film also kind of does that too in sort of a weird way. So there's a recurring thing where he he's showing up on Sesame Street. 
And the first time he's on Sesame Street, it's kind of like meant to signify his ubiquitousness in popular culture. But the second time he's on Sesame Street, it's sort of a replay or a bit of a callback to, you know, his Oscar speech in quotes meltdown moment on the morning show. And he ends up kind of approaching the camera and screaming into the camera, we're all going to die. And of course, all the little kids on the Sesame Street set are traumatized and crying. And it's just, it's it's, again, it's an unrealistic moment when a a defter satire might have been able to actually script something that's plausible and believable and thus that much more effective. Instead, McKay picks up not just a hammer, but a sledgehammer and hits the audience over the head with it over and over again, when one of those little tiny kind of rock hammers tapping away at the corners and the edges might have been a much more effective way to deliver his message, of which, is there a message to? There isn't really. You know, the message is more confirmation of where we are, but it doesn't give us kind of the uh, satisfaction of the comedic auteur at the helm that something like, um, you know, what's the film with the South Park guys? And I'm sorry, not the South Park guys. Uh, Idiocracy, the Mike Judge, you know, Idiocracy film, which is like what we're living in right now. Um, that dedication to satire, I think, is kind of lacking and missing here. So is it worth seeing? I think so. I think there's enough in it to uh, keep you interested. It's certainly a topic of conversation, and I certainly think there will be some Oscar nominations coming out of it. I don't think it's a tremendous Leo DiCaprio performance. I think he is capable of being a tremendously interesting actor, especially as he continues to get older and gain more, or should I say different experiences than just dating supermodels and hanging around on mega yachts. He might get yet more interesting still. I can see him getting a nomination for this, but... Not one of his better performances. Watchable, but not essential. A brief add-on here. I recorded this episode last week, but I'm recording this on Monday morning after the Golden Globes. It is January 10th. Two things I wanted to note. One was that Netflix, as you may know, has been releasing viewership statistics for their top 10 most viewed globally, Uh, You can break it down by country, you can break it down by streaming TV series or feature films. The numbers are kind of interesting. And I offer these not with the assurance that these are truthful views or viewership statistics, but this is what we get from Netflix, which is at least interesting, or at least interesting to me, in the evolving streaming world versus the box office. So this film has been out for uh, three weeks now, but we don't have the data from January 3rd through January 9th. But we do have the data from December 20th through December 26th. During that time, Don't Look Up was viewed for 111 million hours. And from the week of December 27th to January 2nd, it was viewed 152 0.2 million hours for a total, again, up to January 2nd, of 263 million hours viewed. Now, just doing a very rudimentary math here, and as regular listeners will know, math is not my strong suit. So 
anyone out there with a chalkboard and a piece of chalk, feel free to correct me on Instagram because I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong. But if we presume 263 million hours viewed and we presume a two-hour movie, that would give us 131,600,000 viewings of the movie. And if we presume a box office ticket price of $12 per movie ticket on average across the United States, that would equal $1.5 billion in box office. Now, movies make $1.5 billion, but no movie outside a straight Marvel-type franchise movie has made $1.5 billion in recent years. I would be very hard-pressed to think that Don't Look Up, released only in cinemas, would garner $1.5 billion in two weeks of global box office. So I don't know what that really means. Was it really viewed for 263 million hours over that two-week period? Perhaps. You know, it doesn't account for number of people viewing in a household. It doesn't account for... Uh, how exactly they measure an hour viewed, which I know you would think, well, an hour viewed is an hour viewed. I'm not sure that it is or that it isn't. So all we can do is take Netflix at their word that the film was screened for an equivalent of 263 million hours over that two-week period, and presumably now it's even more. So that's thing one, uh, that certainly by the metric that Netflix would use it's beyond phenomenally successful and certainly worth whatever they spent to either produce or acquire the film. The other thing is that the Golden Globes happened last night in such a bizarre fashion. They were not televised. Famously, the Twitter account announcing the awards was using the most nonsensical, horrible jokes to try and tee up the announcements. And then they didn't even announce what people won for when they announced that they won. So the Golden Globes continues to just be a completely worthless mess. Uh, the film was nominated for three awards that I can tell. Adam McKay was nominated for Best Screenplay. Jennifer Lawrence was nominated for Best Actress. And Leonardo DiCaprio was nominated for Best Actor. And again, in the Golden Globes, they split that between drama categories. And then there's musical and comedy. So all of these are in the musical and comedy side. But it didn't win any of those nominations or awards. So I'm not sure what that means either. But typically, the Golden Globes are seen as a precursor for Oscars, although I think the Golden Globes and the Oscars continue to mean almost nothing, to be honest with you, outside of what it has in terms of a marketing and career impact for people who do win. So anyway, that's just a, bit, a brief coda to my episode on Don't Look Up. And I'm curious to know what you think. So let me know. I'll be posting about this after the episode goes up. And... Let me know your thoughts on the film if you enjoyed it. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to tell two friends about the podcast. You'll tell two friends and they'll tell two friends. Now you got it. And so on and so on and so on. And I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.